I'm Jason Lustig, and welcome to Jewish History Matters. Today, Mira Sukarov and Aaron Hontapper join me to talk about social justice and Israel-Palestine. Mira and Aaron recently published a book of the same title, Social Justice and Israel-Palestine, Foundational and Contemporary Debates. Aaron J. Hontapper is the May and Benjamin Swig Professor in Jewish Studies at the University of San Francisco, and he's the founding director of the Swig Program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice there. He has co-edited two volumes, Muslims and Jews in America, Commonalities, Contentions, and Complexities, which he published with Reza Aslan in 2011, and Social Justice in Israel-Palestine, which we'll talk about today. He also is the author of the excellent textbook, Judaisms, a 21st Century Introduction to Jews and Jewish Identities, which appeared in 2016. And I'm also joined by Mira Sukarov, who is an associate professor of political science at Carleton University. Her first book was The International Self, Psychoanalysis and the Search for Israeli-Palestinian Peace, which she published in 2005, and she recently also wrote Public Influence, a Guide to Op-Ed Writing and Social Media Engagement, published in 2019 by the University of Toronto Press. The book that Mira and Aaron co-edited, Social Justice and Israel-Palestine, Foundational and Contemporary Debates, is a fantastic volume that brings together over 20 scholars to talk about, well, foundational and contemporary debates, like what it means to have multiple narratives, the definition of settler colonialism, the meaning of international law, the question of refugees, and hot topics ones that a lot of people find to be a bit too hot, like apartheid and BDS. It's an important volume by itself, and it's also a great jumping-off point for our conversation today about how we can bring together social justice issues with scholarly and intellectual perspectives on Israel and Palestine. I think this episode goes really well with the previous one, when I spoke with Rachel Harris about teaching the Arab-Israeli conflict. In that episode, Rachel and I talked about some of the challenges of teaching about Israel and Palestine. And today, Mira, Aaron, and I are going to continue that conversation about the role of scholars and scholarship in approaching this whole subject. Can we really and truly be totally objective? How can we engage with the subject that is an important social justice issue, and also when we know that our students and members of the public have opinions of their own? and usually pretty strong ones. Mira and Aaron have really important perspectives on these issues, and I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation as we dive into the connection between scholarly work and the social justice issues of Israel and Palestine, a major way in which history matters, because through history, we can better understand pressing issues of the day. And as I think it'll come through clearly in our conversation, that as historians and experts, we have something to contribute to these conversations, too. Thanks for listening. Hi, Mira. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. I'm really glad that you guys are here to talk about this book, which I was really excited to see and to read through. I want to start off by asking, what do you mean by social justice and Israel-Palestine when you look at the title itself? What is the connection there? And why do you think that it's important to integrate these two realms? 
the discussion of social justice on the one hand and the broad set of issues around Israel and Palestine. Part of our idea was that Israel-Palestine, the conflict is taught as an informational and explanatory lens, right? Through prescriptive questions and what have you. In terms of what we mean by a lens of social justice, we, we mean an interdisciplinary perspective that places concepts like rights, justice, and oppression at the forefront. And that aims to de-exceptionalize Israel-Palestine, especially for those who think of this as some sort of saga that's been going on forever and will go on forever. But it, it's a conflict that will end, just like the troubles in Northern Ireland and the horrific stuff in, in Rwanda and apartheid in South Africa and other conflicts in the world. The people in Israel-Palestine are not ontologically different um, in terms of their humanness than other people. It, it's a conflict that will end. Also, our goal in terms of approaching this with social justice is this notion of introducing power to the conversation. If we had only included voices of people with particular social identities and not other voices, I don't think that necessarily would have been just. But our attempt is to bring in a variety of voices and introduce concepts related to power dynamics, which it goes down a rabbit hole of privilege, status, access, oppression, etc. So it also means bringing in the grassroots, spotlighting minoritized identities, Mizrahi, Israelis. There's an essay on that. There's an essay on Bedouin, BDS, of course, is a grassroots, in many ways, a grassroots movement. And really, we're trying to broaden the discussion from what is typically explanatory questions to more prescriptive questions saying, what should happen in order for Israeli people and Palestinian people in the region to experience a sense of justice? And the social part is just that we wanted to flag that it isn't simply a book about legal intricacies. I have a little bit of a a vested interest in the term because during the 2011 tent protests in Israel that uh, started on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv, Israelis were protesting high cost of living, price of cottage cheese, uh, the price of housing, and they were talking in terms of social justice, and it became very clear early on that to maintain a broad-based movement, they would be bracketing the question of Palestinians. And uh, they meant social justice in purely economic terms. And we know that here, when social justice movements more broadly, progressive movements think about social justice, they're thinking not only economically, but in terms of racial justice, ethnic justice, religious justice, justice for every individual and every collective. And so we're really trying to flip the conversation back towards saying, how can Israelis and Palestinians live their best lives? And we as editors don't have a singular answer for that, but we brought together scholars and activists that have very specific answers for that very important question. And they're engaging with one another on that question. We just had the episode with Rachel Harris, where we talked about her book about teaching about Israel and Palestine. And there, it's very clearly a book about pedagogy, a book that is directed at professors, teachers, thinking about how they can teach about the subject. And here you're dealing much more conceptually, much more about getting into the issues themselves as opposed to how we teach them. When you think about a book like this, who do you see as the person who you want to pick it up and what you want them to get out of it? I think we intended this book for use in classrooms where the Israel-Palestine dynamic is being taught, whether it's a Israeli-Palestinian conflict class or history class or the social dynamics of how Israelis and Palestinians relate with one another. So it's really meant for students and the professors who teach them. We also aimed to make it as readable as possible and as accessible as possible to a wide audience who aren't necessarily 
subject specialists. And to that end, we really took care to write uh, very concise intro pieces to each of the eight conceptual chapters showing the reader what's at stake in each of these major debates. I have an essay that appears in Rachel's book as well. And coincidentally, the essay that I wrote in her book is really a precursor to this project, which I engaged in with Erin. And really, it's a short essay about my own personal struggle of how I had been seeking to keep politics out of the classroom and had been even feeling a little bit frightened of my students. What if they brought up the A word, I would say, it appears the night before a particularly contentious topic where I was worried that apartheid might come. What do I do? Am I going to be the foil for the students? Do I need to debate the students so that they see the other side, whatever the other side is, depending on what perspective the student is raising? And I realized it wasn't a really very healthy or constructive approach. So I think what we really wanted to do in the book was to enable a way for politics to be able to seep into the classroom in a way that doesn't put the professor on the hot seat, but enables the professor to shepherd students through the debates, enabling students to see as many perspectives as they can. In contrast to Mira, I was coming at this project, and perhaps not in context, given that that was a precursor and you were already at that stage. But in any event, for about 10 years, I was part of a not-for-profit educational organization where we worked with Muslims, Jews, Israelis, Palestinians, and everything we did was co-taught, co-developed, co-designed. So I ran the organization with a Muslim-Palestinian woman. Our high school programs with Jews and Muslims were run, developed, designed 50-50 by Jews and Muslims, etc. And so I was coming at this project from a number of years back, so to speak, from the vantage point that regardless of attempts by some people to engage in objectivity or neutrality or perhaps closer to objectivity than they might otherwise present things, that it's impossible, I think, to teach about things in the humanities, frankly, um, without offering perspectives. Even if you said, all right, here's our issue and here's three vantage points on the issue. Great. There are probably 10 others, 20 others, 30 others. So I was already at that place because that was how I've been socialized. And that's my experiences regardless. Yeah. I mean, I think that what you both have brought up really is a critical issue as I look at this book, which is to say that as I read it and as I was thinking about it, it seems to me that the central issue that you're engaging with this fundamental idea. And the way I think about this is that even though this is a book with many authors, many contributors are pushing this fundamental central thesis that the politics, the issues should be a part of how we engage with Israel and Palestine as scholars in a way that some people say, I want to avoid the politics. I want to avoid the touchy issues and try to achieve some kind of noble dream of objectivity of neutrality, et cetera. And I think that part of what this book is arguing, and this ties into, Mira, what you were saying in your essay in Rachel Harris's book as well, it has to do with the idea about what is the role of the scholar and how we interact with these issues. Yeah, to that, I would add one more specific thing, especially in the case of the way I've been teaching the courses in my field, political science and international relations, and in many areas of social science generally, professors tend to focus on why questions, or we could call them explanatory questions. So why did Israel extend an olive branch to the PLO in 1993? Why did Camp David 2000 fail? And instead of 
keeping prescriptive questions, the ought questions, what should be, what shall be, why should it be this way? Instead of keeping those questions at bay, we wanted to invite space for students to see how scholars and activists make those prescriptive arguments. Particularly as the book has become available for use in my own courses, I'm finding that I'm assigning op-ed assignments for students to write much more frequently. And I'm encouraging students to take the various topics that we cover in the course, which is really pre-1948 until present day, and make a prescriptive argument. Should BDS be outlawed? Should the various political parties, depending on what case they're looking at in Canada or the U.S., embrace a different view of Palestine within their platforms? Uh, Should Trump have moved the embassy to Jerusalem or not? And make an argument that necessitates taking into account the arguments of another point of view and really taking those arguments seriously and making a good case. Whereas in some years, I might have read a student paper like that and say, oh, this is too ideological. This is too opinionated. I no longer separate informed, well-argued opinion that is derived from a scholarly understanding of the situation. I no longer divorce that kind of argumentation from a more detached, explanatory type of argument. So as you've been working on this book, Mira and Aaron, to what extent has this been an avenue for you to to think through and to articulate your idea about the relationship between what we as scholars are doing and talking about amongst ourselves in terms of the issues and our role in the public sphere? Well, in December at the recent Association of Jewish Studies conference in San Diego, Aaron and I put together a panel on the question of teaching Palestine in the context of Jewish studies. So a book like this has enabled us to try to get those questions more into the forefront to see how the subset of Israel studies or Israel-Palestine studies or even the concept of Palestine, contemporary Palestine especially, fits into our field. In regard to Jewish studies writ large, I was part of a panel three or four years back. We didn't have a book when people ask questions, all right, what book do you recommend? But it was also called Teaching Palestine in the Context of Jewish Studies, And the reason I put together that panel with some colleagues was because the use of the word Palestine was, at least in our experience, it didn't exist in the Jewish Studies conferences. Literally, it didn't appear anywhere in the conference book of the schedule and everything. And I didn't hear anyone use the word over the course of these three or four days. I think that's shifting slightly. And and granted, I'm limited to my experience. But I do think that that's reflective of the way in which even something as basic as not saying Israel, but saying Israel-Palestine or Israel and Palestine or Israel and the Palestinian territories, however you want to frame it, that it's not the norm still in the Association of Jewish Studies to use those terms publicly, if you will. I'd say that that if one accepts that premise, which I do, is incredibly problematic to put it mildly. What, to leave the Palestinians out? Even if the Palestinians and Palestinian narratives and Palestinian perspectives are part of panels, by not even using the name Palestine in a panel, I mean, there's something very structurally vacant about that. I haven't looked through this year's schedule with a fine-tooth comb, but my sense is that the word Israel will appear many more times than the word Palestine. And I think that's reflective of deeper ideologies more than simply, well, how come we don't see the word? 
I don't know, abortion or, you know, some other word that has a lot of weight and gravitas with it. I think that's reflective of ideology. And part of the intention of our book was to put out there, well, you know what, ideology seeps its way into everything, seeps its way into these essays. And whether the person self-identifies as a scholar or an activist or someone who upholds human rights, uh, someone who's an international law scholar, wherever they're coming from, their identities work their way into the text such that I don't think there can be any separation whatsoever between at least some of their ideology and what they write. I think it's a spectrum in terms of how people teach and how much of their personal opinions they add to the conversation. In disagreement with the recent review of our book, which I I, I thought was a very well put together critique, but I disagree with the fundamental thesis of the reviewer, which was she was arguing that you can teach objectively. I think it's pretty well accepted in many schools of thinking within the academy that that idea is maybe a modern idea, but certainly not a postmodern idea. And we're in a postmodern era, if not beyond that. I think a lot of the shifts in terms of how people are teaching in general, and especially about a topic like Israel and Palestine, is very much tied into some of the trends in what we would generally call postmodernism, especially ideas about multiple narratives. You know, if we look at the book, this is the very first section is focusing on the idea of multiple narratives. And this also ties in, Aaron, to your other projects where you've written this really excellent textbook on the history and the culture of the Jews called Judaisms, plural. So there I see this connection as well in terms of your focus on the idea of multiple narratives, multiple perspectives. There you're just looking at the Jews, but when we're talking about Israel and Palestine, it's perhaps even more important as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. In that chapter, we thought that what we might get in inviting an array of scholars to weigh in on the topic of narratives in their respective essays was uh, some scholars arguing for the utility of a narratives approach in the Israel-Palestine classroom and other scholars arguing that a multiple narratives approach is fundamentally lacking morally or ethically. We didn't end up with that, which was interesting. We weren't terribly prescriptive with the essays on what we were looking for. We wanted to let them engage with the concept as they saw fit. But one thing we did find that was quite intriguing to me in that chapter was one of the essayists, George Basharat, talking about how various narrative tellings of history can open or foreclose certain policy outcomes with regard to whether we think of the Israel-Palestine relationship as needing to be one of separation, leading to a two-state solution, or one of potential coexistence, leading to more confederative or or coexistence one-state scenarios. So it's looking at how narratives can be used either consciously or even unconsciously in the policy process. One of the great things about the book is that sometimes you see that there are people with differing perspectives on an issue, and sometimes you really see the consensus that does emerge on these different issues. And that's something that students often don't get a chance to see because very few places in real life and even on social media where people with opposing perspectives are engaging each other thoughtfully. I spend a lot of time on social media and I do see a lot of Facebook, especially debates and Twitter debates. And usually people are trying to score points for lack of a better term. And what we truly tried to do with the book, and I think we really succeeded, was getting scholars and activists with sometimes diametrically opposed perspectives, other times just partially opposing perspectives, to really take seriously the arguments of the other to the extent that they actually cited each other in their 
respective essays. And then it was you know, a bit of a coordination challenge because at what point do you stop the editing process and let each person have the last word? But I think each one was satisfied that they got their argument in and was able to engage with the others. And students in my classes have noted that, that they're quite impressed by the, the fact that the SCS were able to do that in print, like a real conversation. You don't always get that kind of real conversation among scholars. A podcast is, is one thing, but when you're talking about publications, the one thing comes out and then another publication comes out. They're not actually in conversation with each other. One is responding to the other. And I think that one of the challenges of people understanding the scholarly debates, uh, whether we're talking about students or the public at large, is that they don't often get to see that conversation play out. I want to dive into the meat of the book. Overall, the book is organized into these two overarching frameworks of foundational issues and contemporary debates. There's four sections in each of those. I'm interested in peeling back the issues and thinking about why they matter. The first of these is uh, the section that deals with the idea and the framework of settler colonialism. A whole bunch of those initial sections are really definitional, figuring out what is self-determination, how do we understand it, what do we understand by international law, for instance. This question about whether or not Zionism is a colonial enterprise has been around for quite a while, you know, generated a lot of debate. It's a fundamental issue, as you put it, a foundational one, because it has to do with how people understand the nature of Israel, the nature of Zionism, and the situation there. I was really struck by the arguments in these chapters. One of the authors, Sam Fleischhacker, was suggesting the idea of settler colonialism doesn't really work for understanding the history of Israel and Palestine. And then the other authors, Asad Ghanem and Tariq Khatib, are arguing also that perhaps settler colonialism doesn't exactly work. You need a different kind of framework. To what extent do you think that these kind of debates are important? This kind of definitional issue, are scholars splitting hairs when they say that it's a conflict between nationalisms as opposed to settler colonialism? Or if one says, oh, it's settler colonialism and not colonialism or you know, something like that. There are all different kinds of terms, all different kinds of frameworks that we can use that are often slightly different from one another, but only slightly. What do these differences mean in terms of how we're trying to understand the history of Israel and Palestine and the social justice issues? On the one hand, these, a theoretical conversation about tangible things that are taking place is irrelevant. But on the other hand, so much of what I think the good stuff that comes out of the academy is reflections and analyses on reality. And at least that's what draws me to the academic enterprise. More specifically to your question, on the one hand, yeah, whether it's a southern colonialist paradigm or clash of nationalisms, does it matter in, in the lives of people living in Israel-Palestine? Does, does it lives in the person who, they don't have access to healthcare, water, whatever, basic needs simply because of the social and structural apparatus that exists over there. On the other, it's incredibly important because the way in which Israel-Palestine exists, especially in the United States of America, is through discourse more than anything else. Yes, what happens in Israel-Palestine is different than what happens related to Israel-Palestine in the United States, but the United States policy-wise, plays a major role in what goes on in the Middle East. So I think it does matter. I think the analysis of how this country was birthed and, and what happened in, in creating space for this country to be birthed, what was 
people who were just dis- dispossessed and exiled and killed and murdered and all the ugliness that frankly undergirds the creation of every country, at least every country I've ever studied. It matters because then you're getting back to the foundations of something. In grad school, I did a lot of work on um, nonviolence and specifically studying a lot of Gandhi. One of the many powerful things that Gandhi wrote was that if you start something, a project with violence, then violence will always be embedded in the very fabric of the project. He was talking about in regard to a, a new country or decolonized India. But I've given a lot of thought to that over the years, and I think he was absolutely right, and he's certainly not the only person ever talked about that. But in American history, for instance, that if American history, and I this is my orientation, is built on two original sins, if you will, genocide of Native American populations and the enslavement of Africans, that when you look and analyze the state of Native Americans in 21st century and African Americans, specifically those who are descendants of enslaved Africans, there's a connect the dots that is intense and clear. It's not difficult to connect the dots if you just take a few moments to look at A to B to C to D to E. Though I'm not a historian by any stretch, we're not going back hundreds of years with Israel and Palestine. We're going back decades. So perhaps even the more so in terms of how did we get to where we are in the 21st century related to Israel and Palestine? Well, let's connect the dots backwards. And it obviously goes back prior to 48, but it doesn't go back nearly as far as the United States of America. And if we can follow this thread backwards, we can figure out what's going on now and some of the structures that are in place now, where they were birthed. And if one doesn't acknowledge where that strand started, I don't think that they're going to figure out where they are now. For students in Canada, they're very much thinking about Indigenous settler relations right now in terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its attendant demands. And so the idea of reconciliation between non-Indigenous peoples and Indigenous peoples is top of mind. So thinking about settler colonialism as a category is very helpful for making comparisons. And this is similar to the issues that Aaron raised in the American context. The second thing is whether or not settler colonialism category versus competing nationalisms categories are splitting hairs or overly academic is in some ways beside the point because these are the terms that students are hearing in the streets, in the student union building, which is usually my go-to metaphor for the way that Israel-Palestine activism plays out outside the classroom. So part of what we're trying to do is enable students to bring back the sloganeering and the slogans on protest signs and import them back into the classroom using a scholarly lens to really investigate what's going on. So Sam Fleischaker, who you mentioned, who ultimately decides that competing nationalisms is a better framework than settler colonialism. Sam Fleischaker's essay still takes settler colonialism seriously before he concludes what he concludes. So what the students will see is it's not a shouting match between these two perspectives and between these respective authors. It's a thoughtful engagement. And that's really, I think, what we're trying to model. Yeah, I just want to emphasize, I do think that those distinctions matter. And I do think that these debates matter. I think the question that I was trying to ask here was about the intersection between the scholarly discussion and the the scholarly efforts to try to pin down the right terminology pin down the right frameworks, you know, one versus the other. I think some people outside of the academy 
they look at these debates and they either write off some of these terms. Like there are a lot of people, especially within the Jewish community, who are very apprehensive about anybody who's claiming that Israel or Zionism is colonial to any extent. That's one thing. And I think that that is, is really problematic because it fundamentally shuts down a conversation that we as scholars have been having now for a long time about how do you understand, how do you conceptualize and compare and contrast the efforts of Jews to settle in Palestine and other colonial enterprises around the world, whether we're talking about Canada, whether we're talking about the U.S., whether we're talking about Australia, whether we're talking about European powers involvement in Africa, in China and Japan, etc. And I think that this is part of the reason why it matters. But I think that part of the question here is, what do we gain from exposing people to these debates and from trying to bring these scholarly discussions out into a broader sphere? about terminology and about frameworks? My hope is that the debate will become more nuanced by those who've read these respective essays. And so the question of indigeneity is not as nearly as clear-cut, I think, in the Israel-Palestine case as it is in the Anglosphere, the settler colonial countries that you mentioned, Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand, where the settler communities did not have historical ties to the land that they settled. And that is certainly distinct in Israel. So these are debates that readers will be able to engage with more thoughtfully and with more nuance and with more knowledge. And sometimes some readers will find that if they're on the fence about whether one category is better than the other, or they they already believe that one category is better than the other, and they want to see if they get convinced, won't get convinced. And otherwise, others will be persuaded. And that to us is the dynamic ability of the book is that some people will side with the author that they already ostensibly agreed with, and others might find that their ideas change. Part of what this highlights for me is that that this distinction between foundational issues and contemporary debates are not really divorced from each other in a lot of ways. It's useful for the, for the table of contents. It's useful for sort of presenting the material. But in a lot of ways, these debates, which are foundational issues, are actually still contemporary. And these contemporary debates are still foundational in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And we had some tactical thoughts about that when we put a chapter like self-determination in the first half in the foundational half. Because what we were really trying to do, and I think we succeeded in this, was hash out the two-state solution versus one-state solution debate in different words. And I think that's what Brent Sassley's essay does versus uh, Thea Abouahaj and Ron Greenstein is looking at the concept of what it means to self-determine and the concept of what it means to be a Jewish state in today's international global formation, today's international system, looking at the norms and looking at the ethics of Nakba and financialism, and again, hashing out that debate in ways that are perhaps a little surprising to the reader. I think that if we turn to the contemporary debates, two of them that that really stood out to me as I was reading through the book were the sections that dealt with intersectionality and BDS. The reason why I think that, that those two issues are so important, both on their own and also within the context of the book is because they highlight the crossover between Israel and Palestine, broader social justice issues of our present moment. Essentially, the w- part of what I'm thinking about is how the discussions about Israel and Palestine tie in with broader discussions about how we fight injustice. So there we're talking about intersectionality and then also the extent to which tactics and strategies that have proven effective in other instances, particularly South Africa, can be applied to Israel and Palestine, how they're being pushed as a strategy by certain people 
And I'm really obviously opposed by many people as well. I want to talk about both of those. And I'll start with intersectionality. My thinking about intersectionality is that this is really important as we think about the shifting alliances as they relate to Jews in the diaspora and other groups as they relate to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For instance, if you look at the chapter that Joy Ayub wrote, you know, he argues that a more robust Black-Palestinian alliance is still going to emerge, you know, which reflects in a lot of ways you know, a major shift from uh, the realities of you know, 50, 60 years ago when American Jews, they tend to understand their own history as being kind of on the right side of history when it comes to the civil rights movement. Part of what Ayub is, is suggesting here is that this is changing and that situation in Israel and Palestine is sort of forcing Jews into the opposing side of the oppressors as opposed to those who are interested in civil rights and liberation. Part of why I think intersectionality is important because it is a tool that helps us to think through uh, sort of what is happening on the ground, both in terms of Israel and Palestine itself, and also in terms of the debates about it, the discourse, as you said, which is the way that it manifests itself in the U.S. and in Canada. I want to put it out to you guys. Why do you think that intersectionality is a useful category for thinking about contemporary debates about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how it's discussed and debated in particular, as you mentioned, Mira, right, this is the language of the college campus, that this is the language the students are using to talk about different kinds of injustices which are taking place today. What is your approach to thinking about intersectionality with all of these things in mind? So in terms of when we were crafting the book and figuring out what are the topics we want to deal with, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head that one of the reasons we had a chapter on intersectionality or BDS or international law or apartheid was because those are common tropes and common words thrown around when people are debating and or discussing Israel-Palestine, both on academic campuses and, and beyond. So we were doing what we could to, okay, this is a common word that pops up. Also, a lot of these words pop up in, in media about these types of topics. As co-editors, I think, and obviously Mira can speak for herself, we were trying to somehow tap into the pulse of the discussions on Israel-Palestine today and then bring people in to offer perspectives on these given issues. As a non-co-editor, per se, I would say, wearing a different hat, I would say, well, intersectionality is, that word is pretty common on university campuses now, especially with people who identify with the left more than the right. It's a dominant entry point into all sorts of social justice issues, and Israel-Palestine is, is one of them. But it has to do with connecting what is going on over there with what is going on over here. To some degree, it's an outgrowth of globalization um, and, and all sorts of phenomena that have been taking place around the world for decades now. I'll add one other thing is that in wearing the two hats, because Mira and I both have pretty serious opinions on all sorts of things related to these topics, it was more difficult for me than Mira. Mira mastered this much better than I. Sometimes when I was editing a given essay, Mira would be like, hey, remember, we're editing, but not with our perspective. <laughs> it can be difficult when it's issues that you're so passionate and connected to to enter any conversation or any topic or answer a question like you're asking, wearing a, an editor hat or wearing an author hat, so to speak. Um, sort of in fairness to the struggle that Aaron's outlining, part of our role as editors also is to pose tough challenges to authors 
our role as editor is to imagine ourselves in the place of a critic who vehemently disagrees with an author's position. So what would an author say in response to uh, argument X, Y, and Z? Often the authors would be getting that anyway from their counterparts in their clusters of two or three in, in the given chapter. But when they weren't, we would be the stand-in. So that's an important part. In terms of intersectionality, we actually called that section intersectional alliances because an important uh, essay within that chapter is about U.S. foreign policy and how it has shifted over time with regard to Israel-Palestine and how it's probably shifted less than the grassroots might like yeah, in the Democratic Party, for example. So there was a interesting uh, tension being traced in that essay by Yusuf Munayer about how the views of some key new uh, Democratic uh, representatives on the scene are trying to push U.S. foreign policy perhaps leftward, to use, a, to use a crude term. And part of that push does derive from issues of race and, and gender and other identities in the American context. Obviously, I think, Aaron, as you were pointing out, there's a distinction between how you approach these topics as an editor and how you approach it yourself as a scholar and also as you know, somebody who's involved in all sorts of issues. I can also appreciate this because also as a podcast host, I also have a similar kind of situation where, where you are both dealing with issues as yourself and also in terms of trying to shepherd a conversation, which I think is a big part of what you guys are doing with the book is trying to shepherd a conversation. But if we take off the editor hat for a moment, as you look at some of these terms, things like intersectionality, things like uh, expulsion, things even like narratives, you know, there are some people who reject these ideas as having any value to begin with particularly from people who are more on the right-wing side of things, I think, more than on the left. As you mentioned, intersectionality in particular is a very central idea of left-wing circles very specifically. Part of what I'm asking here is as you look at the ideas that are being engaged with here in the book, and there are, of course, people writing in the book, for instance, writing about BDS, you know, who are vehemently opposed to it, where do you see this book fitting in in terms of expanding the discourse about Israel and Palestine when so many people, for instance, within the Jewish community, kind of scoff at these ideas to begin with, some of them anyway. Let's take the easy one first. Some people in the Jewish community scoff at BDS, but some of those people also really derive great purpose from writing public pronouncements in opposition to BDS. While they may be very frustrated by it, they, they don't want to be silent on the issue. So this book, again, brings together scholars and activists who have something to say about these very salient issues. As for intersectionality, I mean, we could say that some people might roll their eyes at it, but again, it's a perspective that is uh, used in many activist circles. So then the question is, what kinds of insights can we take from it? And people may agree or disagree, but I guess what we're trying to do in the book is not necessarily debate the value of terms on their own, but to debate the policy directions and political implications that derive from the embracing of certain terms. So that it doesn't become simply a semantic exercise, but there's really something at stake for the reader. Today is December 11th, and perhaps during this very recording, at some point in the near future or in the near past, the President of the United States is set to sign some sort of executive order that as from an academic standpoint, my own, is going to limit academic freedom. How I connect that to your question is that, will Jews read this book or what have you? I, I have no idea. Um, I certainly have a good 
sense of where the Jewish community is at in the San Francisco Bay Area on all sorts of issues. And even though that question was probably in my mind, in Mira's mind, somewhere floating around, I mean, we were writing this book to be used in educational settings. We were writing this book to be used on college campuses, perhaps more advanced high school campuses. Our goal was to acknowledge and respect that there's valid perspectives on the issues that we confronted in this book and to give space to these various perspectives, even if we disagree with them, whether they're our cup of tea. There's much larger patterns of things taking place in the world that are even beyond us, meaning whether or not this book will be read by people in the Jewish community. Well, there's things taking place related to Israel and Palestine in many ways that are feeding into today's December 11th executive order, meaning the the discourse around Israel-Palestine that takes place in the United States takes place not just on university campuses, but also in, in the halls of the White House. Even if, suppose this became the most popular book on Israel-Palestine in the academy, there's things taking place as we speak, literally, that might very well shut books and projects like this down, which speaks to larger wars, if you will, taking place related to Israel-Palestine, anti-Semitism, Jews, white supremacists, and all sorts of other things. What we didn't want is a book where someone flips through the table of context and goes, apartheid, intersectionality, BDS, I know what kind of book this is. We weren't trying to do a wink-wink book to a certain set of people. This is a book that unpacks, investigates, and analyzes these controversial terms in good faith across perspectives. And that was a real important pedagogical goal for us. How does this push the debates and the discussions forward? I mean, I'm thinking here in two realms. First of all, in terms of the public sphere at large and also the college campus, especially because the sense I'm getting from you guys is that the primary audience for this book is going to be students in as much as these chapters are easily assignable texts that professors can utilize in the classroom. When you're thinking about this whole kind of a project, in what way do you think that it can make a difference? So for instance, I look at the BDS chapters, right? And there, I think one of the goals that you're trying to do is thinking about how you can lay out the landscape of the discussion about BDS that's taking place you know, in 2019, you know, entering into 2020. And so when you have these different chapters that are presenting different perspectives on this issue, which is an ongoing discussion and ongoing debate, you know, how do you think that this kind of a project you know, can have an impact? I think it enables students and other interested uh, readers to get a taste of how, in the case of the BDS chapter, how pro-BDS activists argue and what they argue and how anti-BDS activists argue and what they argue. The third essay is about the attempts to legislate against BDS in various American state legislatures. And so that gives a sense of the political dynamics of the current uh, political moment we're in. So students get a taste for how those different perspectives engage with one another. And again, authors were required to engage directly with one another's arguments. So it's very useful. And I think that a really important value added part of the book is our editor's intros. So in a very short, concise intro to the BDS chapter, just like we do with every other section, we lay out what's at stake in the BDS debate. For readers so they understand really concisely what each side argues and why it even matters. To add to that, I would say it acknowledges that every issue discussed, particularly the eight issues we focus on in the book, they're valid issues, that they have a validity. 
the notion uh, of all too many, I would say, in, in Jewish communities that BDS is off the table. Any organization that is linked to it, they can't enter our building, literally. And whether it's Hillel or Jewish federations or what have you, that's just a, it, it, I get it. And I understand where a lot of these uh, emotions and knee-jerk reactions come from in Jewish communities today. And I disagree with it. BDS is a conversation. Whether I personally disagree with it or not, as an academic, as an educator, as a teacher, it's a conversation. As an educator, I have a responsibility that if I'm teaching a course about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and if one of the most important day-to-day issues that comes up for a college student is whether or not one supports or not the BDS movement, well, we need to have a conversation and we need to approach this analytically because that's what the academy is about. It's about teaching. It's about training our students in critical thinking. I think by having a book where such essays are gathered in a single place is helpful to those teachers who are teaching about these types of issues. And then, okay, well, maybe this hopefully will be one of their resources for teaching about intersexual alliances or BDS, or what about the term apartheid or what have you? That is a really critical element which is like how we take these ideas, which are seen as taboo by some people, some of them by many people, and how we engage with them. Because if a term is you know, so taboo that you fear that by mentioning it in your class at all, and under any circumstance, like that will cause problems of one kind or another, that's a political victory for one side. I think that you're staking out this important claim here that as academics, that we should not be entirely divorcing ourselves from the social justice issues because we're academics and because we should be, so to speak, objective. As academics, we have opinions, we have perspectives, and that we should embrace the fact that we have opinions and perspectives as opposed to trying to be robots. I think this gets back to the point we were talking about earlier about limiting oneself as a scholar or as a instructor in a university classroom to explanatory questions. Why did this happen? How did it happen? Explanatory and descriptive questions, maybe even predictive questions. And embracing the fourth spoke of the hub, and that is what should happen. So yes, most of these essays are writing in an opinion mode, but they're opinions that derive from their scholarly understanding of the way things are. And in terms of social justice, there is this question of, of course, the term social justice means a lot of different things to different people. And we uh, lay out the different ways that social justice can be understood in, in our editor's intro. But what we're really talking about is how to make people's lives better. And that, that's where the nub of the disagreement is. And that's what we're really trying to do in this book, is really lay out those disagreements, hopefully with an aim of improving the plight of Israelis and Palestinians. I think as you're talking about that, it raises these fundamental issues that I think about a lot in terms of this project of the podcast, which is about why history is important, why it's important to study the past and to learn from it. I think that one of the challenges is that oftentimes people think about history, and and here I'm thinking more about kind of the popular perspective on history as opposed to what, what we do as academics, but they think it's just knowing about what happened in the past, but it's also what we learn from it. As you said, like, there's this extra component that we don't usually talk about as academics. We don't talk about what should happen, but maybe we should, because we do want to be able to help students to form opinions that are based on historical understanding. I'm not going to tell them what to believe, but I want them to be able to create an opinion that is informed on the basis of a deep historical knowledge and understanding. And if we shy away from anything that is related to this question of what should happen, then we enter into this world where 
we are implicitly saying that what we are doing doesn't matter. Yeah, but we're only doing half the coin. And they're going to be engaging in prescriptive arguments. Social media has so dominated in the last several years, the way we talk in the public sphere, they are going to be talking prescriptively. So can we give them the tools to do that? The the tools to do that in an informed, evidence-based and compassionate manner. We've talked about how Mir and I are approaching teaching about Israel-Palestine in terms of one's identity and one's personal politics seeping into the process regardless. And in the same exact way, we were very mindful of the social identities of the authors of these essays. There are some very valid critiques related to the politics of identity in terms of tokenism and what have you. But to teach about any topic, all too many books for most of academic history are just written by men and mostly written by white men and mostly written by Christian white men, etc. If we had done a project on Israel-Palestine and all of the authors were male, that probably wouldn't have flown in this day and age, thankfully, even though there are still prominent books about all sorts of topics that are coming out still like that, unfortunately. But part of our intention was to have people, because their social identities are tied up in with their opinions, it's obviously not a cause and effect of, oh, if you're Jewish, you believe this, you're Palestinian, you believe this, etc. It's nothing so simple. But we were very mindful of the social identities of the authors, such that it was our best effort to have a broad array of identities of the authors in terms of gender, in terms of national and religious and ethnic identities. And I think that is a distinction between our book and other projects out there. But I think that that's important, not simply, again, checking off the box, oh, did you get a Palestinian writer? We could find people who challenge the stereotypes of given identities. That was one of our intentions. And, and I think that's also something that speaks to the project itself and what we tried to do with the book. And one thing readers will notice is that there's a lot more variation across the Jewish contributors on matters of political importance than there is on average across the Palestinian and Arab contributors. And professors may want to engage that very question with their students on sort of a meta level of the book is what does that say about conversation in the contemporary Jewish community today versus the conversation in the contemporary Palestinian community today about potential outcomes and range of political positions. And I think a lot of that has to do with relative power. One example, one of the essays arguing for BDS is written by an Israeli Jew and an essay arguing very much against BDS is written by an American Jew. So there are some little surprises like that. I think like as we get towards the end of our conversation, one of the things that that I'm interested in here is to think about stepping back and looking at this book as a whole and the issues that it raises. It's not just about what is its contribution, but how the discussions that are taking place here, in what ways do you think that we can take away an overarching perspective on Israel and Palestine and issues of social justice by looking at this book and the issues that it raises? For instance, when you talk about the two sections, the foundational issues and contemporary debates, in what ways do you think that rethinking or reassessing the foundational issues can help us to contribute to our understanding of contemporary issues and also vice versa? You know, how what's going on right now provides a necessary corrective, for instance, or an illumination of these foundational issues about Israel and Palestine that you're engaging with in the book and that the authors are writing about. 
what do we gain from this project as a whole and how the different parts interact with each other? I think the, what the book really helps students do is figure out what's at stake in the various debates. So when an anti-BDS activist says that supporting the three BDS pillars means the end of the Jewish state, what does that really mean? And how do we understand Jewish state? How do we understand self-determination? And how do we understand international law? And so we're toggling between contemporary debates and foundational debates in order to understand ultimately what's at stake in various political demands so that we can start to peel back the layers. And rather than talk past one another, we can try to encourage a public conversation where we are leveling the conceptual playing field so that we can have uh, real productive debates. Well, I think it matters because we're talking about a conflict that's current and real and affecting people's lives. I mean, which goes back to something you were saying before about history. And I, I have a bias in my scholarship. Going back 20 years, I remember thinking I had a master's and I was trying to figure out next steps in my professional path. And a friend of mine convinced me that scholarship matters if you're doing contemporary stuff. Now, I'm not getting into the validity of that full on, but I do think for me, I can only do scholarship that's related to what's going on right now. That's just how I'm designed. That's how I orient towards these things. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not some, yes, it is taking place on the other side of the world. And yes, most people don't spend years living over there and or studying the conflict as I have and as Mira has. But there are real people who are in this conflict. And this conflict is one of the most polarizing conflicts on American campuses. And why that is, is a whole other probably podcast. But it matters not just in Israel-Palestine for the people who are living this conflict. It matters for people who exist on college campuses because it's tied into their identities. It's tied into their feelings of their safety on their campuses. It's tied into so many pieces. And that's part of the intersectionality of this whole entity of Israel and Palestine, that it, it is really like a spider web and it's connected to so many different things going on. So given all of that, and given that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is being taught on campuses, our book is an attempt to add voices to classrooms that perhaps weren't present prior. Not particularly that because we want students to necessarily think A, B, C, or D, but because we do want them to think about A, B, C, and D. And how does that relate to their understanding of Israel-Palestine? And then how does that relate to their understanding of the United States or Canada or wherever else? Because that's the world we live in today, where these things are connected to one another, even if they're literally or metaphorically on the other side of the planet. I feel like the through line throughout this whole conversation has been about helping to engender thoughtful discussion on the university campus by creating a text that students can read, that professors can use when teaching, when thinking about these issues, because social justice in Israel-Palestine are a thing that is already taking place on the college campus. I think we can have kind of a sanity check here and say, to what extent do discussions on college campuses matter? I know from personal experience and going back for for years and years and years, people are always talking about what people are saying on college campuses like this is the end of the world. Or they're always talking about what people are talking about on college campuses like this is the most important thing in the entire universe. And it's easy, I think, for us as professors who have sequestered ourselves to the college campus 
for years and decades to say, okay, yes, what is happening here is the most important. This is our lives, right? But in the grand scheme of things, there are conversations which are taking place all over the place and not just at the university campus level. So when we're talking about all of this and the discussion about Israel and Palestine, why do you think that the debates that take place at the university level, I'm not here talking just about the professors and their discussions, but the overarching discussions and debates, you know, when a student union is pushing forward on proposing to have a BDS resolution or anything else, why do we think that the university campus and the debates about Israel and Palestine and social justice matter, particularly as opposed to other places where these debates are taking place? Debates on university campuses are really only one element of where these debates show up. And our book is equally applicable to trade union debate or Canada's recent about face in voting in the UN or Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. So there are debates taking place in the corridors of power. There are debates taking place in people's workplaces and there are debates taking place on campuses and there are debates taking place on the streets of Israel and the streets of Palestine. So this book is a way of capturing the debates that are taking place in real spaces about real people's lives. I'd say that the United States and Canada have a disproportionate influence on the rest of the planet, especially in terms of monetary influence. The United States has a ridiculously disproportionate influence. So I think pound for pound, if one wants to change the world for the better vis-a-vis education, I think one can have more influence on the world if they're working on a campus in a country that has disproportionate power. Great. Thank you guys so much for this really interesting conversation. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like it, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.